Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. This particular outline is going to take us a couple weeks, so we'll finish it next Sunday. We're looking at justification, the blessing, and the basis, or the person. Justification and the blessing, the blessing and the basis. We're going to read all of Romans 5, uh, but as far as the breakdown of all of it, uh, like I said, the latter half we won't see until next Sunday. Romans chapter 5 begins, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into, his, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Beginning in verse 12, we'll break this down more uh, next Sunday, but we'll go ahead and read it so we can keep it all together. Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And you might mark in the margin, as I have, that means me too. All have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not, uh, had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That, is, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your blessings, Father, that you would increase, that I would decrease, that it would be your voice, your words, your written living word heard here today and expressed here today and not my own. I pray, Father, that what we walk away with is the truth as laid out by your word, as poured out upon the cross. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've been a little sneaky 
Uh, normally, when I do a study through a book, I like to say it, and I like to do it all at once. Uh, but my attention span, your attention span, I don't know what it is. I've been working on a study through Romans for a while, and the Lord only has me to deliver one every once in a while. So if you write in your Bible like my wife does, taught this in Romans and this chapter, this in this date, you'll see it's separated by months. Uh, I've just been picking away at it, but the Lord only lets me come back to Romans every so often. Uh, so when we went through the doctrines of grace, we spent a lot of time in Romans. We talked a lot about what we're about to deal with, which is justification. This chapter is, after all, an explanation of the last word in the chapter breakdown, the last word of chapter 4. I'll just read that last verse. Uh, actually, I'll start in verse 23 of Romans 4. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. This entire chapter, chapter 5, is about that one last word. And it begins with, therefore. So it's pointing us back to it. It's making sure we understand it. A clear understanding of Paul's argument is, is essential if we are to grasp the meaning of justification by faith. In breaking down the subject of justification as it's laid out by Paul here in chapter 5, we have two sides of the coin to consider. What we'll see first today, the blessing of justification, and the second is the blessing of its basis or its person of, ju of justification, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's deal first with the blessings. These blessings, uh, as we mentioned, it was mentioned in the song we just sang before it, these blessings are not achieved by the believer, but rather granted unconditionally by the maker. They're not earned by works that we shall do, words that we shall say, but they are granted unconditionally as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ or through that justification, that propitiation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The root principle of justification is granted unconditionally, and every blessing is granted unconditionally. So as we break down the blessings of justification, and we've got... I don't know, they're not numbered in my outline, they're lettered. Uh, this has happened to me once before recently, so we'll say six or seven, I think there's seven. All start with P, I don't do that very often, but we got lucky this time, I guess. Um, understand that every one of these blessings are blessed unconditionally. There's peace, place, prospect, uh, which is just simply looking to the future, power, propitiation, and portion. And we should be able to get through all those. Uh, in the time that we have this morning. So we're going to go in order of this chapter as we go through this study. Romans 5, 1, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first blessing that he points out to us. It's the first blessing we're going to go over here today. Peace. We've been granted peace. Now, this isn't necessarily talking about a peace in this life, peace with your neighbor, peace in Israel, peace with Russia. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see those pieces. We're likely never to. This is a more important piece. Where does condemnation come from? My angry neighbor in Russia. No, condemnation comes from God. And there is therefore now no more condemnation. We have peace blessed to us through justification with God the Father. Where we need it most. Fear not man, but fear he who has the power to slay and also condemn to hell. This is the God for which we have that great crisis back there in John 3 that we must have peace rather than condemnation with or we will never see the kingdom of God. We have been granted peace with God by God. If peace was performed in Christ, 
then I had nothing to do with its imputation upon me. It was performed in Him. It was performed by Him. It was performed through Him. And it was poured out on me. Does the bucket have any say on what's poured into it? Beloved, we are but buckets catching the grace of God for we've been placed below Him. We've been placed under the second Adam. Placed strategically to inherit the kingdom of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. A silver cup has been thrust into my bag. I shall answer for this thing before the one who made it so. I have the will of God thrust upon me. You say, well, I thought we had peace. We do have peace. We have a mission. We are so at peace, we have work to do. We don't even have time to tarry because even in the 11th hour, he comes and says, why tarry ye? Come and work. Philippians, which we quoted just a moment ago, but there in Philippians 4, Paul says, be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. We couldn't do that without peace with Him. And the peace of God, that's the very next verse. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. That's what we're to do with our downtime. Not video games, not sports. God help us. You've seen what's happened in the past week. This isn't from a Broncos fan this time around. That was for last week. But these so-called sports heroes that scream and push their own coaches, throw helmets on the ground and throw fits, lead their fans to shoot at one another, they're not heroes. They're not models for our children. They're not to be looked up to. What day of the week do they work? Exactly. Well, pastor, they they bless themselves and they pump their fists and point up. They're not in the house of God. There was one quarterback that I feel like we were most convinced was probably saved. And he didn't get to last in the NFL very long. And that's kind of our fault, Broncos. Beloved, we've got to wake up. In our downtime, we're to consider these things, the things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, with any amount of virtue whatsoever, that is what we are to entertain. How we doing? Because this first blessing of peace is not dependent upon those things, but it gives us access to enjoy those things. And we jeopardize the blessing of peace when we invite into our lives the entertainment of chaos. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. The God of peace shall be with you because you've entertained yourself with these virtuous things and given yourself models for that which you are to do. What are we to do, Pastor? Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. That's what we're to do, Paul says. 
The second blessing is in Romans 5.2, the blessing of place. We read in, in Romans 5.2, and, and when you break down verses, you, you can use uh, letters to, to point to certain parts of it. And if you look in the outline, you see that I'm pointing to the first part, but I'm going to read the whole verse. By whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of glory of God. We have a position, a place, as a blessing through the justification we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. As born-again believers, God is now accessible to us by our faith. We could not come to the Father but by the Son. And being justified by the Son, we now have access to the Father. I did stand here previously. The latter portion of this uh, chapter and, and outline makes it clear that the law reveals my original standing in that first Adam's fall. That we all stood before God when he, was, when he was given the assignment to guard the temple, to guard the Garden of Eden, just a place of Eden, not all of Eden, and not even against other human enemies, but simply against self. Guard the Garden. And we fell with him. Oh, pastor, we didn't have anything to do with it. He was our father. He was the first. He came before and when he fell, we fell. When he became weak to sin, we all became weak to sin. When he was assigned the tilling of the ground that would now rebel against man, so were we. A new guard put in place before you leave Genesis 3. A burning, fiery sword. The cherubim of God. None shall enter in. God meant business when he said, keep the garden. And man has been removed. If you don't believe we fell with Adam, then how is it that we haven't returned to the garden? Because if we didn't fall with Adam, then you believe that only Adam was removed from it. Why aren't the rest of us in the garden? We don't have a ground to stand on. We don't have a heavenly place, a heavenly position in which we can earn access Without Jesus, it's as though we go back to the gates of the garden and say, enter in, I, I, I desire to enter in, Lord, Lord. He says, depart from me. There's only one that will have access to the garden. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And being justified, we are seen as Christ. We are seen with His blood and His sinfulness upon us. So we didn't deserve it. Vicariously, we were washed in Him, not in us. Not in ivory or dove, but in Christ Jesus, that we may obtain. I was utterly wicked and rebellious. My own fruit confesses that I fell with Adam. It wasn't just my political stance to stand by Adam arm in arm and defend what he did. My own fruit, my own attitude, my own lips, my own burning, fiery tongue that cannot be quenched confesses continually that there was an old man nature. This is not a summit we climb to, this place of blessing, but a firm foundation that we have been stood upon. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. I won't go through all of the armor for time's sake, but Paul says right here the purpose of the armor in Ephesians 6, 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, 
that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. It's an interesting way in which we've closed the first two blessings, right? Paul gives us a list of virtuous things, and he says, consider those things and do them. In this, we consider the armor, all the armor, not just the convenient parts, all of the armor, and we wear it. Do you have faith to follow? Do you have strength to pursue? The third blessing is the blessing of prospect. We see it in this same verse, Romans 5, 2. And it's at the end there. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a future thing. He has glory now. But what we're hoping in is the same thing Hebrews 11 points to when it talks about what faith and hope are. Is a future thing. A future reception into the kingdom of heaven. The prospective future that we now have, us born-again believers, is to see God the Father glorified. It is not for us to receive a glory, but the glory of God, to see it firsthand, to witness and experience it in a time and place where the Son is but legend. For we have God the Son now. It is not the simple opposite of having no future. We have to define this first. In our lost state, we had an everlasting future. It was an everlasting future of dying over and over and over again, apart from God the Father, in complete and utter misery, longing for an end but never receiving one. The opposite of everlasting life is not just nothing. It's everlasting dying. It's everlasting misery. It's everlasting suffering. Man in and of himself is afraid of nothing too. What is death? What could it be like to close our eyes and never open it again? You don't have to worry about that one. That's not happening. There's something on the other side for all of us. And if it's not everlasting living, it's going that way. Everlasting death. The opposite of that is everlasting living in the presence of God with complete and utter contentment. That is our hope. Our hope is to have the complete and utter contentment that was once lost in the garden. When Eve said, we're not to touch that tree. She said that and was not hungry. She said that and she was not desirous of that tree. But what about you? Over and over and over again. What about you? What about that tree? wonder what it tastes like. I wonder if God will even know. And then eventually she saw it was good for eating. We long for the time in which we know contentment again. We'll never know it in this life. As sure as the seasons, the seasons express to us that we can be too cold and then a few months later be too hot. We don't know contentment. We won't know contentment. We can, if we love the mountains, we can go to the mountains but never have enough of them when we come back. If we love the beach, we can go to the beach and come back and never have enough of it. And on and on and on we go. What is it, since we've already referenced it, that the chief players said after the Super Bowl? We'll be the first to do it three times in a row. You just went to the, the biggest game in your field of expertise and won, and you've done it two years in a row, and you confess to the entire world before saying you're going to Disney World that it's not enough. You will never know contentment in this life. If your hope is that through salvation... 
You will one day be content here on this planet. You have the wrong starting point. It's not one of the blessings listed here. We will never be content here. Think about it. Just bike a hundred miles. I'm excited that I did it. Now I hurt. I'm not content. I hurt. I'm glad I did it, but now I have to set another goal. And each of us has the same thing. Fix one plane, two more show up. It goes on and on and on. If we ever figure out our politicians, guess what? Four more years, we got to do it again. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 14 says that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. The Lord allows us glimpses of what heaven must be like. Our, our largest window to gain a glimpse of what heaven must be like is right here. We'll see it in our lives too, but only because Scripture points it out. Hey, that thing's a lot like the thing we read. It's a lot like that one thing that one guy did. And we'll see pictures of this promise afar off, and we'll be persuaded of them. And we should embrace them, as it says there in the text. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Beloved, if we have a hope of one day holding great contentment in our persons, and we know it's not in this life, then this isn't our home. Because we've been granted a promise of contentment. Which means wherever our home is, that's where that contentment promise is. That's where the payout is, baby. We want to get there. We want to be at peace. We want to be in the place of contentment. It's not here. We're strangers here. We're pilgrims here. We are confessing and pointing others that there is a place. There is a person. There is a way. There is a truth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. We ought not be content in Tulsa. Of all the places we've lived, this is my favorite. I hope to never move again for many, many, many reasons. That bathroom that we just earned hard, the hard way is one of them. But this isn't my home. One day I'm going to leave it behind for a better country. A heavenly country where we will know we'll know contentment. We won't need canes. We'll have no hip pains, brother. No worry about where the next check's coming from. No worry about seeing our loved ones. No worry about super se uh, future separations. We will forever be with the Father, basking in the sun. Heaven and hell are not opposites of our earthly life. It's important that we make this note because people will say silly things like, this must be what heaven is like. Or even, this fun will never stop. We're going to go to hell and I'm driving the bus. And some friends in college that used to say that all the time. This world is not a picture, a perfect picture of what hell will be like any more than it's a picture of what heaven will be like. This is a fallen creation. One day, it had a garden. That was perfect. One day it had humans, two of them, that were content. That they worshipped and faithfully served God the Father. It is not such now. But it's not hell either. This is not the worst it can be, beloved. For the lost, this isn't even a taste. When we read that story of, of Lazarus and the rich man, 
we don't get the impression that that rich man had ever experienced anything like what he was currently going through. He doesn't say, he doesn't give us similes. He doesn't say, man, it's like this or it's like that. What's he beg for? A drop of water to cool his tongue for just an instant. Just a moment. That's suffering none of us could even imagine. Imagine your greatest pain, your greatest hurt, your greatest loss, and it's so bad and it's so pursuant and it's so, there's so much pressure to it that you pray for even a moment's relief from it because you know it's not going away. It's made clear to the rich man that he deserves what he's going through. And the second thing he asks for is someone to go warn his brethren because he can't leave. He can't escape it. His only longing is for just a moment's relief to just a portion of his, whatever his body must be like. But we've talked about it before. Both heaven and hell will have different bodies too. We will have bodies made perfectly to experience whichever direction we're going. Bodies in hell that are perfectly made to never extinguish and continue to suffer. And bodies in heaven that will never know pain. Not even the memory of pain. Where every hair is remembered and we are content. Do you ever think about that? I know everyone in this room, when they go to the restroom, they look in the mirror. And usually we see the faults, right? I, it's not the hairline anymore. That's been gone for years. But there's always something. you imagine what your body must look like for you to actually be 100% content with it? We won't know it in this life. But in the next life, maybe there's just no mirrors. Maybe we don't even have the ability to look at ourselves anymore because it doesn't matter. Heaven's not about us. It's about God. In hell, there will be... Well, in this life, we are all, the saved and the lost alike, to some level, experiencing God's grace. In hell, there will be absolutely no grace. That's a pretty severe difference. Even here, the lost receive rain. They receive cool. They receive warm. They receive heat. They have an ability to have a purpose and an ability to know some level of contentment. Not in hell. Absolutely, utterly no grace. Only the judgment of God for their sinfulness. In heaven, we read in Revelation 21.4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Those former things are all we know right now. And they will be gone. Think about this for just a second. Those former things, you go home, God forbid, and you turn on CNN or Fox News. I don't care for either one anymore. They won't have anything to talk about. If there was a Fox News or a CNN, well, there won't be. A Fox News in heaven, there will be nothing to cover. Because all they're covering now is the former things. All they can talk about now are the woes and the hurts and the losses, the crying and the sorrow, the pain and the death. All those things are going to be gone. They shall pass away. I'm sure all here have lived long enough to know we will never know a peace like that in our earthly lives. We are going to lose people continually here. Hebrews 11:16. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. We talked about this last week. He doesn't waste time, does he? 
Why would he prepare for us a city? Prepare for us a mansion, a dwelling place? Unless he purposed for us to be there? And being of full sovereignty, he has the ability to take us there. And he has the ability to know if we'll be there. So he wouldn't have any purpose in wasting time and preparing a place for people who may or may not make it or may or may not be in his favor at the time of their passing. Once saved, always saved. The fourth blessing is the blessing of power. We see this in verses 3 through 5 of Romans 5. Paul says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Well, we might think if the preacher is going to preach on a blessing of power, he's not going to start with, we're going to know tribulation. But to go through tribulation the way this is describing is power. You ever gone through tribulation? You remember going through tribulation when you were lost? And even that was different because I believe that the Lord was preserving us because he knew of our salvation. He knew how it would end. But do you remember before the Lord revealed salvation unto you, going through tribulation? Oh, woe is me. There's no end to my suffering. This is how I shall perish. We have a power over these things. We have a power to assess our actual experiences in God. You know, those that don't have the Lord Jesus Christ can't do it. They can't come out of their situation and say, God must have a purpose for this. They don't know Him. They can't say God's will is being done in Romans 8.28. It must be for my good because He loves me. All they see is the turmoil of their situation. Kiara, who we've been praying for. Uh, the one up at the mission who's been suffering is lost. They don't have the ability to see anything but their suffering. But we have a power greater that when it seems death is near, we can say, God has a purpose in this. Because of the love of God, we are enabled to glory even in the face of tribulation, for we see the hand of God behind it. Psalm 22, we, we read this uh, about a month ago. Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. We have a power. Like Joseph, who's helpless. He has no home. He has no wife, no children, no access to Jacob or his brothers, and they're the ones that sold him off to begin with. And yet he stands before Pharaoh and says, I have a power to say that God gave you a dream. That God is in this thing. That God hath done this. God hath revealed and will do accordingly. Think about that scene. Pharaoh, who has all earthly power, is caused to tremble before a prisoner who has none. Because Joseph had a power that even in tribulation he could see that God had done this. Even with Potiphar's wife and the situation there, God had done this. It is a horrible experience. This is a, a, a miserable thing to have to go through, but God hath done this. The gospel, the good news, is the power of God, beloved. And who has it? His people. 
We have it. There has never been a generation of man that has improved morally over its previous generation. We've seen countless generations that have improved in technology, improved financially, improved in the entertainment world over its previous generation, but not one time have we seen man left unto himself morally become more responsible generation over generation. That's haunting for where we are now and the future generations, is it not? But it's never happened. Yet the Word of God still lives. This book has not been extinguished. This book has had a multitude of enemies for thousands of years. And yet it still exists. Amen. It cannot be destroyed. Amen. We have a power blessed unto us from God. Sure, there's not many of us. Sometimes there's less, sometimes there's more. That has no bearing on the power of this book. It has no bearing on the power of his promises. It has no bearing on the true blessings of God. Fifthly, the blessing of propitiation. We won't spend a ton of time on this. We talked about it a lot last fall. But in verses 6 through 10, I think probably the greatest text in the Bible on Jesus Christ as the blessing of propitiation for us, the born-again believer. We read, For when we were yet without sin in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... See, the contrast isn't that somebody's willing to die. The contrast is that sometimes somebody would die for a good man, and sometimes somebody would die for somebody who's halfway decent. But the Scripture's already made it true to us in two verses that we were without strength, we were ungodly, and we were sinners, and yet Christ Jesus died for us. Amen. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. He conquered death on the cross. He granted eternal life from the tomb. All of it's one act, one mission, one will of the Father, but very distinguishably different in how it was vicariously performed. We are saved by Christ's life through His perfect sacrifice. We'll see more of this as we continue into this lesson, probably into next Sunday. But Him being the payment for what was required of us, it's a blessing. Sixthly, a portion. Yeah, there's only six. I thought there were seven. There's only six. If you were afraid we weren't going to make it, we're going to. Romans 5, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We have now received a blessed portion, a gift. That's what the portion is. Through His resurrection, conquering death, the born-again believer is now secured in everlasting life. The Spirit within sheds God's love to us and through us. God revealed His love at the cross when Christ died for those who were without strength, who were ungodly, who were sinners, who were enemies, verses 6-10. Thus proving His great love, because there's no way we deserved it. 
There was nothing redeemable about us. Nothing. Paul's argument is this. If God did all that for us while we were his enemies, how much more does he have planned for us now that we are his children? Now that we have been purchased, what is this portion that he has for us? This is this lines up perfectly with what the Lord's teaching. Peter says, all we've given up, what waits for us? James and John says, we want the right and left hand in the Spirit. We want to be right there at the table. And Jesus says, you're taking with your flesh, with your fleshly minds. The portion I have for you is greater. It is of the Spirit. It is to handle the Word of God. It is to take the Gospel to all ends of the earth. And you will not be paid for it. You will not receive sacks of gold and good treatment by the world because man hates the light and loves the darkness. They don't like what you're going to tell them. The portion I have for you cannot be measured, but it cannot be corrupted. Moth cannot touch it. It is forever preserved in me. Jesus says, I am your portion. You long for all of these things around me. You long for more than what I've already given you. Jesus says there are those in 2024 that will read this book and wish they were here today. He says, I am your portion. He had to look at the disciples and say, Am I not enough? I'm going to Jerusalem to be spat upon and spitefully entreated and killed. And you want something else? Now we know he didn't say that. But what he is conveying is, I am the portion. I am the lamb to be sacrificed. And I will do it without speaking against it. Without ever uttering even a groan of disapproval. I will go through all of that for my elect. The right and left hand is... He says in that text we just read in Sunday school, that my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but the Father's. But what was His to give? And to take up again. His life. He says, I am your portion. Think back to that garden. God comes back, walking through the garden. Voice is heard. What have you done? Same thing happened there. I was your portion. God the Father could have said, you are the last humans who will ever have the experience of dwelling in the garden with me and being pampered and cared for and no contentment on this creation that has now fallen because of your disobedience. I was your portion. You know I was your creator. They had to be covered now. God the Father had to slay animals that He had created to cover them because now they needed more. They had to be cursed now. They couldn't be content anymore. Now they had to be covered. They had to be cursed. I don't have a C word, but they had to be removed. I guess liberals would say canceled. I guess that falls into the C's, right? Paul's argument is if God did all this while we were yet enemies, that when he vicariously became our portion, how much more awaits? 
We are saved by His death. We are also saved by His life, verse 10, as the power of His resurrection. Uh, Philippians 3.10, we're going to read it in just a minute. As the power of His resurrection operates in our lives. He died once. His resurrection, He yet lives, continues. He's not resurrecting over and over again, but He's still alive. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know Him. Paul, beloved, was alive when he wrote this. And he is speaking of a present knowledge. He says that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. He had a power in tribulation to see Christ Jesus and to know Him better. That's a power. This is proof positive that there are blessings for us in this life made possible by our justification through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have received reconciliation, which is the word atonement there in verse 11. And now the love of God is experienced in our lives. Listen again as Paul speaks of the portion given unto him, and this is where we'll close. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, he's, again, he's living when he says this, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Another power. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He is our portion. And what was true for Paul is true for me. It's true for you. We ought to love this book, Romans. We ought to pour over it. I, I thought when the Lord didn't have for me to, to do a study through it intensely week after week, it was maybe... Too much doctrine. There's, there's not a such thing for the spirit, but there is a such thing for the flesh. And you all don't get to see your eyes and your faces, but too much doctrine will wear you out. But Romans is a beloved book. And we ought to learn to love this book. There's more here than any man has ever been able to teach. These blessings, when we get to talk about the basis, become even more clear. May the Lord be with you this week.